Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content. From inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we listen to Dr. Aaliyah Khan talk about her many academic endeavors. She talks about how she got involved in certain projects, the highlights of her research and how it's impacted her, and how her group organized themselves to accomplish certain tasks. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone. Today I have Dr. Aliyah Khan here with me. And so welcome, Aliyah. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad to have you here. And I would love for you to describe who you are as well as your connection to McMaster. Sure. So I am a clinical professor of medicine at McMaster University, and I'm the director of the Calcium Disorders Clinic, as well as the fellowship in metabolic bone disease at McMaster University. So my area of expertise is metabolic bone disease and parathyroid and calcium problems. And how long have you been at McMaster? So I would say that it's been over 25 years now. Oh, amazing. Well, it's very nice to have you on our podcast. And I was really looking forward to talking with you because I discovered recently that in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research, you and a group of collaborators have published a large number of articles released online in the November and December issues. And so I would love to hear more about this work, not only from the perspective of what research you did, but also hearing about the many publications that came from this work. So as a quick uh, note to the listeners, I'm going to refer to this journal of bone and mineral research as JBMR. So if you hear that acronym, that's what journal we're referring to. Yeah, wonderful, Ruth. So basically, um, it, it, it required 100 experts actually from around the world uh, to put together these 18 evidence-based publications. And uh, they, it was a monumental task. It took us three years to accomplish this task. And we had uh, six members of the steering committee uh, that I co-chaired. Um, so the steering committee oversaw uh, eight task forces, and there were members from around the world that were allocated to each of these eight task forces uh, based on their expertise. Um, and we had divided the uh, the uh, objective into two major uh, goals and objectives. One was to develop uh, guidelines for the diagnosis and management of primary hyperparathyroidism. And the other was looking at diagnosis and management of hypoparathyroidism. And the reason why we felt that it was necessary to uh, proceed with this monumental task was because hypoparathyroidism is actually a rare disease. And many people who have hypoparathyroidism are not appropriately diagnosed and often unfortunately present with a catastrophic event. 
especially young people who are not post-surgical hypoparathyroid. And uh, we really wanted to do something about it. We have had patients at McMaster who have been referred with um, major complications of parathyroid disease. And we really felt that there was time now to put together the evidence that we have, distill what we know, identify the areas of uh, information that need to be explored, and put this together and document an evidence-based approach so that we can improve the quality of care around the world. That's incredible. I wonder, how did you get connected to this group of collaborators? And also, in reading your editorial that came or that accompanied the November issue, you were the lead or one of the co-leads of this initiative. How did you get connected? Well, that's a really great question, uh, Ruth. And basically, um, in our field of parathyroid research, we know who the other researchers are uh, because we've had the opportunity to work with them on clinical trials and on other educational initiatives over the past 20, 25 years. So we know who the leaders are in the various countries. And, um, you know, we connected uh, via email and we said, you know, we really need to address these issues, plus their new molecules that we've been involved in uh, bringing to development, to clinical development. And we wanted to provide guidance regarding how these molecules should be used. Uh, when should they be offered to patients? What are their limitations? What are their advantages? What are their benefits? And what are potential concerns? Um, so we wanted to highlight this and, and do this uh, from an academic perspective and from a clinical perspective and not from an industry focus. So we really um, felt that uh, this would require an international effort. Um, and um, McMaster University, I'm pleased to say, played a, a leading role. Uh, we also asked uh, Gordon Guyette with his PhD students to serve as the uh, study methodologist, and he kindly agreed. And um, then we had uh, uh, my co-chairs, uh, my co-chair uh, leading the parathyroid uh, consensus was John Belzikian uh, from Columbia University, who really is a giant in the field of parathyroid disease. Uh, Maria Luisa Brandi uh, from uh, University of Florence in Italy, uh, who has been a, a tremendous force in Europe and a leader in uh, the European Endocrine Society. Uh, we had. Uh, John Potts uh, from Harvard, uh, who was really um, the editor of the textbooks on parathyroid disease and the and the lead at the NIH grants, and Michael Manstad also from Harvard, and Bart Clark from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, so we felt that we had uh, global uh, representation. Uh, we had uh, representation from different facets of the condition. Uh, Maria Luisa is an expert in genetics. My expertise has been in uh, has been in developing new molecules for the medical management of parathyroid disease, both hyperparathyroidism and also in developing PTH molecules for people who have hypoparathyroidism. And so we felt that you know globally we had the expertise, we had the representation, and each of us connected with societies around the world. And so it really was, as you mentioned, Ruth, a collaborative effort. Um, 
and uh, we connected with uh, societies around the world for both endocrinology and endocrine surgeons. And we invited the endocrine surgery societies and their representatives. So these hundred experts were chosen by connecting with the societies around the world saying, you know, we invite you to join us and please go ahead and, and nominate representatives uh, from your society to represent areas of expertise um, in your region. And so we brought together these 100 global experts and then we developed uh, the uh, PICO questions uh, with Gordon's help. And uh, we did systematic reviews and meta-analyses and we fleshed out, you know, how to diagnose uh, parathyroid disease, how to predict who's going to develop hypoparathyroidism following neck surgery, how can we avoid this complication, how do we treat parathyroid disease in pregnancy and in breastfeeding women, this is an area that did not have global consensus on previously, um, you know, what are the best treatment approaches, what are surgical techniques that would be useful in preventing complications, and ensuring that we are optimize surgical outcomes. And then we positioned all the medical therapy. So Ruth, it was a huge task, three years in the making. And we would have conference calls amongst the steering committee approximately once a month. And then with the task force co-chairs approximately every three months. And then each of those task forces would be meeting with their 20 to 30 um, uh, task force members. And so overall, we had 100 people working in a pyramid, basically, yes. you know, reviewing all the literature and working closely with Gordon and his PhD students. He had assigned one PhD student to hypopara and one to hypopara. And um, we coordinated the development of these 18 peer-reviewed uh, publications, which cover, there's one on methodology, there's a paper on the systematic review and the meta-analyses the several meta-analyses that were done. And there's diagnosis, epidemiology, uh, surgical management, medical management. And we've also provided a blueprint for research uh, so that, um, you know, uh, experts around the world would know where are the gaps in knowledge that we collectively, as a global team, felt that they need to be addressed to advance the field further and to provide a blueprint for research for the next five to 10 years. That's incredible. And as I'm hearing you describe all the pro project management, and I feel like even using the word project management doesn't do the work that you all did justice or doesn't describe it adequately because your collaborations and the various research studies that arose from this collaboration, massive. It, is, it was massive and so impressive. From your perspective on the clinical side, what were some of the highlights that you found in going through this process over the past three years in being a part of such a large collaboration? I'm wondering how that impacted you clinically or what uh, new insights did you gain clinically from this experience? Yeah, and that's a really very important point that you've highlighted, Ruth. And I would say that all of us uh, learned 
from our colleagues. You know, each one of us uh, learned some key pearls that will that will stay with us, and um, uh, we learned from from people around the world. Um, some Ivy League schools in the U.S., uh, the European centers of excellence, Canada. Are we're leading? You know, we we need to be proud of our accomplishments and our contributions to the field, and also, you know, learning about uh, clinical um, the need to develop and and depend on clinical skills more so uh, than advanced imaging in in certain parts of the area of the world where we don't have those resources available, where they don't have access to DNA analysis of uh, you know a panel of thirty genes, um, so. So, you know, we learn from each other to how best improve the care that we're providing. And I feel that the area that we made the greatest impact was in pregnancy and lactation. And um, in Canada, we have a series of approximately 20 patients with uh, um, parathyroid disease who have undergone uh, uh, pregnancy recently. And, and these are patients that we've uh, been referred from University of Toronto, uh, from other areas, from London. And so we've kind of, uh, Ottawa, you know, from we've kind of been bringing all these cases together. And then uh, we partnered with uh, our colleagues in Denmark because they had a similar number of cases and we pooled our cases. And then we were able to to see how many of these patients actually needed to have adjustments made in the doses of their medication, their calcium and their active vitamin D during pregnancy. And we were able to put that information with what we know happens during pregnancy, what are the changes in calcium homeostasis during pregnancy, and say, well, you know what, approximately 20% of pregnant women will need a change in their uh, dose. And you will not know unless you're monitoring these people closely. And if we allow these women to become hypercalcemic during their pregnancy, then the baby's uh, parathyroid glands will not develop. And the baby will be born with hypoparathyroidism and hypocalcemia. Whereas if we run them low during pregnancy and we don't keep their calcium in the normal range, then the baby's parathyroid gland will become hyperplastic. And the baby could even have fractures in utero. Uh, from excess PTH. And uh, pregnancy and lactation was an area that we really um, needed to pool our resources because in rare diseases, we need numbers as well to get a good clinical impression. And just having the cases that we had in Canada wasn't enough. But when we partnered with our colleagues in Denmark and we're partnering with other centers of expertise in, around the world, we are able to put together the numbers of patients to be able to draw meaningful clinical conclusions that will go on to help a patient anywhere in the world because they will be able to say, well, here's a research paper that describes what happens, what we know, uh, the changes in homeostasis in pregnancy, and this is what it means in real world cases. And I therefore need to follow these guidelines, which are one of the guidelines that we said was in pregnancy, monitor these women every three to four weeks. And unfortunately, that's not happening today. And these patients don't do well. And we're not working as a team with the obstetrician, gynecologist, and pediatrician. And we need to foster that teamwork uh, to be able to translate all that work that we did down to improved care um, in the, in, uh, delivered to patients right here at home. Um, so, And we're hoping that we'll be able to do that with the recommendations that we made. 
I really appreciate that example because you're bringing home the practical implications of calcium homeostasis during pregnancy and the implications to fetal development. At the same time, however, emphasizing that you need numbers in order to understand broader trends and treatment approaches. And so you have the practical direct implication to the patients with whom you have contact. At the same time, you have the international collaborations with others that are encountering similar situations in their practice environments, and you're able to pull your collective wisdom and resources through this collaboration. Is that an accurate reflection of your experience? Absolutely. You said it perfectly, Ruth. That's exactly what it took uh, for us to be able to advance the field and make recommendations that are meaningful, that are evidence-based, and um, that will hopefully result in better patient care. I'm really inspired to hear that. And I would direct the listeners as well to JBMR and to look for those articles that Dr. Khan is referring to. And especially, I'm going to go back and look at the article on pregnancy and treatment approaches during pregnancy. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. I had one final question to wrap up our time. And uh, when I say final question, I recognize, though, that this will be a big question. So um, I wanted to take some time to explore this. Underline all that you're describing about this three-year project and the 18 publications that arose from this collaboration. I can only imagine the complexity that was involved in coordinating and collaborating with so many individuals. I, I think about collaborating with individuals who live in my city and even collaborating with one or two other people is already challenging enough. And to think or to imagine collaborating with individuals around the world on such a large scale I imagine that in your group's debriefing of the time that you've spent together, there are some lessons learned or some key takeaways. So I would love to hear from you. What are some of those key takeaways or lessons learned that you have discovered over the past three years working on this collaboration? Yeah, that's really great point, Ruth. And I also want to just remind everyone that we did this through the pandemic. And initially, we were hoping that we would have physical in-person meeting because, because, you know, when you're seeing each other face to face, you know, this it just adds to that interaction. Um, but we did everything virtually. And uh, I think that it enabled us to uh, utilize the resources that we have as efficiently and effectively as we are able to. Um, and also it helped us to brainstorm some difficulties, practical issues, like when do we meet, you know, like if we meet at eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time, that's approximately three o'clock in Europe. Exactly. And that's, that's like 10 o'clock in Korea. Yes. So that works. And so we would say, okay, we're going to meet. And it could be like a Monday morning at 8 a.m. was the best time to bring all these different time zones together. But even so, that was 5 a.m. in California. 
And so we had, you know, our calling Dolores show back from UCSF rubbing her eyes at 5 a.m. And she would keep her video off because she was in her pajamas. So, you know, but it was these were the practical issues of getting people from around the world to connect. But we made it happen and it was um, enjoyable and we learned from everybody and we circulated the PDFs of all of those 18 uh, manuscripts and everybody was so pleased with their participation and contribution. And, you know, we had one of the surgeons from Barcelona saying, I feel like I'm just a Barcelona endocrine surgeon and my contribution is, is there for the world to learn from. And we realized that it's when we work together that we bring together our um, expertise, our clinical impression, and what we've gained from our own careers and our own interactions, and we bring that together collectively, that's what makes a difference. And bringing all these multiple brilliant minds together and bringing their expertise together, really what made it possible to achieve, um, you know, what the fruits of this effort. Uh, it really could not have been done with a smaller number of individuals. And also we had 65 endocrine societies and associations, surgical societies and endocrine societies endorse these uh, manuscripts and um, they're being highlighted around the world. Wow. So with a, a hundred collaborators and 65 societies, I wonder how did the, uh, the entire map come together? Because you're describing a map of all the different areas of research, all the different types of studies that you'll explore falling under these two primary headings. Did, did you find that in this process, people just naturally fell into different parts of the map and all the gaps were filled? Or did you find that there was a bit of negotiation required in terms of how to address all the topics that the group wanted to cover without a lot of overlap in certain topics over others, et cetera. Yeah. And that's, that's a very important uh, uh, issue that we had to address uh, collectively. And the steering committee, so on the steering committee um, with uh, John Belzikian, Maria Luisa, Bart uh, Clark, Michael Manstad, John Potts, and myself, uh, we sat down and we said, okay, what are the key areas that we would like to address? And that's really where the steering committee had to kind of establish the scope of the project. And then we looked at who are the people who are publishing in this area? Who are the people who have made major contributions? Those are the people that we're going to ask to join as the co-chairs uh, and to lead the task forces. So we had the steering committee overseeing the task forces. The task forces were being led um, by two individuals, each task force. And then we had eight task forces and there were two uh, co-chairs for each of those task forces. And then we had about, you know, 10, 15 people in each of those task forces. So it was a mammoth uh, project. And then I led the hypoparathyroidism guidelines and John Belzikin led the hyperparathyroidism guidelines. And those were the two final guidelines that we published, but it was like a pyramid structure. So we did have a structure. And the point that you raised is, you know, who gets to decide the scope? And 
we did that as a group. Uh, so we had um, really good representation uh, from around the world, uh, from the leading institutions uh, saying, okay, these are the areas that we need to address. And then Gordon Guy had helped us uh, to put it together, you know, in terms of the PICO questions, framing the PICO questions, ensuring that our guidelines were trustworthy and ensuring that we didn't fall into the pitfalls of, of, of people who write guidelines and making sure that we were not being biased and ensuring that we were at arm's length uh, from industry. Uh, so I think that we had lots of uh, checks and balances yes. in place to ensure that these guidelines are going to be academically sound and that's true great. to the clients. Oh, that's that's really so fascinating and inspiring to hear how the the vision of the steering committee was then implemented in the structure that you created, and uh, that. That's that's really inspiring to me. Is there now that we're transitioning out of the pandemic, <laughs> what plans do you all have to perhaps get together and celebrate in person, given that most of your collaboration has been on Zoom over the past few years? Yeah, so we are planning, um, you know, we will have a meeting in Vancouver, actually, um, later in 2023. And we're going to celebrate and, uh, you know, get to see everybody and really pat ourselves on the back. We did it. (laughs) Definitely. I I feel that you've uh, really highlighted the strengths of collaboration, and also highlighting how to make large scale collaborations work. And that, thank you for providing your insights and sharing your experiences around that. Thank you so much, Ruth. It was my pleasure. It was so nice to have you here. And I'll refer listeners to the November and December 2022 articles in the JBMR, the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research. Thank you, Dr. Khan, for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Chen, for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.